The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, we're talking river herring troubles in the Gulf of Maine, and that's part of the Western Atlantic Ocean. And with me today is Dr. Jamie Cornane. Hi, Jamie. Hi, good morning. Uh, how, I'm sitting here and it's snowing out in Cambridge where the snows are mounting. And where are you calling us from? Well, I'm visiting beautiful San Francisco and it looks like it's going to be a really nice day today. So I have avoided the snow in the northeast. <laughs> but, but this is unusual. You usually are here in New England, right? Yes, I'm usually in uh, New Hampshire. I'm based near Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Well, we're glad you called in, and it's probably wicked early in the morning, but at least you've got warmer temperatures than we have here. Um, so let me say a bit about who you are. Dr. Jamie Cornane is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of New Hampshire and with the Environmental Defense Fund. Jamie currently serves on the Atlantic Herring Plan Development Team of the New England Fisheries Management Council. Jamie has worked most recently on mapping hotspots of river herring bycatch by trawlers and saners that target the Atlantic herring. For her doctoral work, Jamie assessed spatial patterns of ground fish such as cod, haddock, and yellow flounder. Jamie researched ground fish biodiversity in the Gulf of Maine and on Georgia's banks for over the past 100 years. Jamie has found that historical perspectives provide baselines to measure success in the current spatial management of fisheries. Okay, now, now help me out here. Current spatial management. Now, this speaks to me to the complexity of managing fishing, that there are, it's not two-dimensional pastures we're talking about. These are deep waters with currents mixing things up, and there are spatial waters where what you see on the surface may have no relation to what's going on beneath the waves. It's like a dynamic layer cake of complex systems. And then you mix in the seasons, you know, where the seas are not what they seem to be from month to month. How do you get a handle on this? Sure. Well, this is not really a new concept, this idea of um, looking at things from a spatial lens. This is something that goes back to over 100 years in New England where fishermen uh, clearly knew their fishing grounds and knew where to fish and understood the um, environmental forces at play and which fish they would expect to find there. 
Um, my, one of my colleagues, Stephen Clayson, worked um, extensively on mapping these historic fishing grounds, and he went back to the, the literature and found uh, fishermen's accounts of where, uh, very detailed accounts of understanding life under the sea and what it looked like under the sea. And I think fishermen today are still in, very much in tune with that um, natural environment. My perspective is really to come at it from a statistical point of view where we can use some tools to do uh, similar work and to look at these larger patterns and also on a fine scale to uh, detect changes over time. So where fishermen may view something for their, um, through the course of their fishing, I'm very interested in how that, th those things change over time and um, whether you, you have a permanence of one space versus another. And so, so that's really what my work is about. But isn't it complicated for managers when they hand fishermen a map and say, show us where the fish are, and they color in the whole map? Well, I think, um, you know... And that's because have... the fish are moving around, right? It's not that they want everything. It's that the map doesn't... It's hard to have a map to show what the fisherman knows. And, you know, managers want simplicity, I would think. Well, we, we do have uh, really good tools available to us to look over... Um, a, a period of time and understand where some of these patterns have persisted. Clearly, fish do move, and so one way we can do one way we can look at that is add in that seasonal component. So, what happens in the spring versus the summer, and do these patterns stay the same, or do they change? And then, over the longer time horizon, do they change? Um, and what does that mean for fisheries management? So, clearly, managers are very interested in um, understanding where they can best focus their efforts. And so that's where spatial management is ex extremely valuable in understanding where the, where's the best place to um, implement a strategy. Yes, where and when. Um, river herring have been uh, discussed much on my Internet radio talk show, uh, at least in the last four, ep or in at least four episodes of this program. And if the listeners want to see a complete list of episodes, with descriptive text, you can go to www.oceanriver.org um, and click on the show's icon in the lower right. Uh, also, while listening to this program, if you have any questions or comments, you can email me at rob at oceanriver.org. And if you are emailing after the program, um, I will forward your words to uh, Dr. Cornane, and uh, we can... Uh, Respond. We'd be delighted to hear from you guys if you want to comment. Uh, on a previous episode, Dr. Boyd Kennard, he was actually on two episodes. One he talked about national fish and the other on international fish populations. And he said much about the importance of migratory fish bringing carbon and vital elements inland from the sea. And along the Connecticut River, Dr. Kennard found uh, elements in the soils that were uh, that were missing below the dam, and they were present in the soils above the dam. He's also been studying the surgeons, surgeons, yeah, surgeons, uh, the sturgeon fish in the um, swimming free in the Connecticut, and they are much more healthy population than those that the population that's pounded above the dam. Um, Dr. Prescott Brownell came onto our show earlier in the season, and uh, he uh, called the fish populations that climb our rivers drivers of carbon highways, of 
delivering much-needed carbon to upland forests and fields. So we've learning a lot about the importance of uh, these fish like herring that come up the rivers and bring so much to the inlands. But we really know very little about um, what's the life of them in the oceans. And it's very becoming very disconcerting because people are doing so much to help rivers and help the, the herring in the rivers, what with cleanups and lowering of dams and stuff. Uh, and so we do all these efforts, and then we just kind of wait and hope that, you know, a good fraction of those that left the river will come back. Uh, like the, like the, the, uh, the alewives will spend seven years maturing at sea before returning to the river. So we have to wait, and we know that, well, seven years ago was a bad set, so we don't expect a lot to come back or something. Um, Jamie, what, what is life of herring once they leave our rivers? What's it like for them out there? Well, once they're at, um, so river herring is, uh, I would like to just point out that it's really two species. It's alewife and blueback herring, and they're often managed together. And their distribution along the coast um, for alewife can any, be anywhere from Newfoundland to North Carolina. And blueback is a little bit more southern distribution from about Nova Scotia to the St. John's River in Florida. And they undergo extensive migrations to return to um, their spawning habitat. But once they leave the rivers, they mix with other pelagic fish. And so pelagic fish are the ones that are midway or higher up in the water column. They, they feed on um, algae and copepods and larval fish. And they're also food for other fish. So they're important, very important forage species. Jamie, when you say they mix, do you mean they, they, they'll school together? They will. We see you know, these images together. of clouds of fish just whooshing around together. Absolutely. And you, you, they will mix with mackerel and they'll mix with sea herring. And um, there's not much known really about what the mixing rates, so how many, how many alewife versus how many herring. But we do know that they do occur together and they, um, they tend to school together. And there are areas where they, where they do this, um, especially um, in the wintertime south of Cape Cod. And um, I'd like to just step back and really think a little bit about what's going on with these fish in the river, too. So they Please. have to migrate uh, up many different um, obstacles. And some of the best places um, where they've been able to um, get upstream are actually in Maine. And Maine has been really a pioneer in this improving fish passage and creating these wonderful fish ladders, some of them that are beautiful and natural and made with rock and mortar and stone and um, these wonderful pools for river herring to migrate up. And um, through that work, I, Maine has done uh, tremendous improvements to the river herring population. So when they return to sea, um, the question is, what happens to them then? Are they? And the big uh, question that we've that I've been exploring is the bycatch issue of what is the impact of bycatch on river herring in our sea herring fisheries? And this is one of the impacts that, as you pointed out, Rob, has really not been worked on. Most of the focus has been on make, improving water quality, making wonderful fish passage. But the big question is, where they spend most of their life, which is at sea, 
what's happening there. Hmm. And so, yeah, so in the sea, they, they tend not to just hang off the mouth of the river they came into, they came out of. Absolutely. Um, river herring can be found throughout the Gulf, on George's Bank, um, depending on the time of year. You can find them any, almost anywhere off the waters of New England. But there are times when they are lining up to go back upriver um, in the springtime to uh, go back upstream to spawn. So you can imagine um, this fish is really going through a wide diversity of habitats, salty seawater to really fresh um, lake water. Mm. So they're, they're, they're ancient and they're adaptive. And they must have been, a re- they were one of the reasons probably why the, why the first Europeans came here was for the bounty of the ocean. Well, absolutely. There's a very long history of um, alewife and the, the use of um, alewife uh, for exports back to the um, original um, to the motherland, to the UK, to Britain. And there's still a real strong, especially in Maine, uh, cultural significance of the alewife. I think to the alewife festival every year in Damascata, where people really celebrate the return of the alewife. And um, when you go to the, the fish ladder and watch them, make their way up these beautiful pools of water um, all the way back to the um, to north of the fish ladder from the Atlantic Ocean. It's really wonderful migration. Amy, and I have to interrupt. We're going to be right back to this conversation after this break. Thank you for listening to the Green Talk Network. Help to spread the green by involving your family and friends. You're doing your part. Now help them think green. Spread the green. The Green Talk Network. All together Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific time for The Growth Strategist with Aldana Ambler. On the show, Aldana and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart. 
grow profit, and grow your business with Aldana Ambler and the Grow Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. Keep listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures, today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Dr. Jamie Cornane about river herring and the troubles they're facing in the Gulf of Maine. Uh, these are very tenacious fish that have been here since the dawning of time and yet, or the dawning of the Atlantic Ocean, and yet they are now being pushed to the brink in, in, by many different forces. And, and before we left, uh, took the break, Jamie was describing the cultural significance of herring to communities like Damascotta, Maine. Uh, Jamie, what are the municipalities up in Maine doing to help the management of herring? Well, the state of Maine has a very long history with um, towns and municipal management of fisheries. So river herring are caught in um, state fisheries, and the individual towns have the right to give their um, the right to fishing to an individual within the town or a number of individuals. So uh, these alewife harvesters of Maine have really become wonderful stewards of the resource. And I think to my friend, Jeffrey Pierce, and he's the um, director of, of a group called Alewife Harvesters of Maine. And the really good example that he is setting in his town of Dresden, Maine, he fishes alewife, and primarily his catch is used for lobster bait in Maine. And through his work, year-round, he is improving stream passage for the alewife. He's going down to check on the river and make sure that um, everything is clean and it's, it's, uh, there's no blockage. And this is a, a year-round endeavor for him. When the, when the fish are uh, returning to the river in Dresden, and this is about um, an hour north of Portland, Maine, on the coast or near the coast, he's, he uh, sets up his fish trap and um, catches alewife. And what struck me about the way he harvests alewife is he's not putting fish traps across the entire stream. He puts them in one place where the flow is good, and you can see the other alewives passing up. So he knows that if he catches all of them today, he won't have them for the future. He won't have his livelihood. But he is a very good steward because he knows that those fish will have babies and will spawn and they'll return to sea. And so the life cycle will continue. And so he's really a, an example of a great steward. And there are many stories like this up and down the main coast of alewife harvesters who really do care about their fishery. In fact, this fishery is um, the, the, the very great example of how fishery, uh, small-scale small fisheries can be managed 
by individuals and, and do a very great job. Now, in um, there's a group, uh, there's a commission called the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, and this commission uh, manages state fisheries all the way from Maine to Florida. And they have a plan for shad and river herring, and their most recent amendment to their plan shuts down all fisheries for river herring because the status of river herring has declined. The, the numbers of landings has, has, uh, of river herring has declined so dramatically in, the, in recent years that there is trouble that collapse has occurred. There is uh, concern that collapse may have occurred for the stocks across the entire coast of the United States. And, and especially in, in the state of Massachusetts and Rhode Island and some others, there's been closure to even fishing for river herring by recreational fisheries. And so the weir stewards is, you were telling is, us about, are they affected by this too? Well, they, they have received an exemption because... Good, of, because they practice the stewardship that you were talking about. Exactly. So you know, they have through generations, it's been responsible stewardship. Exactly. So they have been one of the, one of the few that are, have received an exemption and are really pioneering the way um, to continue to um, have these uh, river herring fisheries, but to help restore the resource. But the commercial fishermen are not happy. Um, and and why is there? What what drives the the, the catching of herring at at sea in particular? I mean, what's the market forces there? So both river herring and sea herring are used primarily for lobster bait. Um, sea herring is also used as for human consumption in um, a high-quality sardine. And river herring in um, the state waters is also smoked or pickled, um, and some people um, will, will also eat it. But... Primarily, both fisheries are, are for lobster bait, and the offshore fishery is um, uh, seasonally is, is is really in different parts of the Gulf of Maine and George's Bank, and depending on where the fishery is operating, they can encounter river herring when they're focusing on trying to catch the sea herring. Mm. Jamie, could this be could catching herring be a problem? I mean, is is are they are herring wanted by these salmon um, aquaculture places? Like they got to feed those salmon some kind of protein. I'm not sure if they're used uh, for fish food, but I, knew, I do know that they're prime. I'm not sure exactly if I do know that they're used for high quality um, uh, food for some of the aquariums, and they're also used for um, marine yeah. mammals for for sea herring. I do also know that they're used. Uh, primarily for lobster bait in Maine. So there's a really strong connection there um, and uh, to continue That's the interesting. lobster yeah. fishery. You, need, you need bait. So. Okay, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I, mean, <laughs> so I had my question about the, uh, the salmon. So, um, so because of this uh, Atlantic States Marine Fishery Commission passing this default closure of state fisheries for river herring, except for in Maine, which will be an exemption. Um, and this starts very soon, I think, next year. Um, this has really led the way for some of the other councils to consider what to do about river herring bycatch in their, in their fisheries. 
So the New England Fishery Management Council, which I um, I do work for, um, has really been leading the council process to address river herring bycatch in the Atlantic herring fishery. My work has really focused in, focused in on understanding where bycatch occurs in the fishery, the places, the times and areas where it occurs in the in the sea herring fishery, and then really thinking about what are some ways, some mechanisms to address that bycatch of river herring and some possible solutions. Hmm. And so uh, what are you finding? Well, um, and this has not been purely my own work. It's been a wonderful collaboration with um, the state of Maine and the state of Massachusetts. Um, as you mentioned earlier, I work on a planned development team um, for um, Atlantic herring. And in that work, we've found that there are areas um, in Ipswich Bay, which is just off the coast of um, where Massachusetts and, and New Hampshire meet, uh, the backside of Cape Cod, and in the northern mid-Atlantic Bight, and this is really the area of Rhode Island south to um, Long Island, this area that's um, just not far from offshore. But those are really the areas where the fishery has encountered river herring, and the area, the times that are of, um, are that this, these encounters occur are really January and February. Sometimes March and April can be um, times that are equally um, of equal encounters. But it's that September to December time that is really seems seems like there's uh, many more encounters of river herring in the fishery. It, it is seasonal. I had the f good fortune of hearing you. Um, seeing your presentation when you gave it in Portsmouth, New Hampshire in December. And what struck me was there's, you know, the Gulf of Maine and the adjacent Stellwagen Bank, and, and I guess, yeah, and you went around almost to, uh, to Long Island, I guess to Long Island. Uh, that's a lot of water, and yet um, you only found that herring were important in a small percentage of that, right? I mean, that's like, what, like 10, 15, 20% of, of the survey area? Well, we looked at, um, if we just looked at the fishery and where the fishery is encountering them, we might see that pattern. But if we, there's also um, a wonderful um, federal trawl survey that we looked at. And that survey has been going on for over 50 years. And in that, we, we found that depending on the time of year, river herring can be almost anywhere in the Gulf of Maine and George's Bank. So they really are cosmopolitan and don't ex expect to find them just protected in one area. However, um, that survey uses a bottom gear type, and for the most part, these gears are operating off, off the bottom in the mid in midwater, so it might be a different environment. So we've really focused on what the fishery sees. Good and, point. And to really, if we're going to get at where exactly this problem is occurring, it's good to know where the fish could be and where they've been, but it's also good to know where the fishery is currently finding them, and where the current problems are, the, the likely encounters with the fishery as well. So we've looked at both of those things as we've tried to develop um, an understanding of where river herring occurs at sea. We wanted to look at both the, a, a research survey with a long history and also the most recent patterns from the fishery. So river herring are in trouble as a bycatch when fishermen are trying to catch something else. What are the something else's that they're fishing for? Um, the work that I've primarily um, looked at 
is the the fisheries of herring. Now, the herring fisheries are often the same as the mackerel fisheries. So by default, I'm looking at both. Mm-hmm. But there are other fisheries that do encounter river herring, and um, those have not really been the focus of my work. However, um, those include um, whiting. They include um, other pelagic species like squid and butterfish. So there, there are other fisheries that do encounter them, but my work is really focused on Atlantic herring. Atlantic herring. Jamie, we'll be right back after this break. Thank you. For listening to the Green Talk Network. Help to spread the green by involving your family and friends. You're doing your part. Now help them think green. Spread the green. The Green Talk Network. All together Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. For some time now, we have heard more about buying from local farms and sustainable agriculture. We also hear about our world becoming more polluted and our resources being depleted. What does this mean for our future and our children's future? Sustainable Agriculture Spotlight with Jeff Berkby will focus on local foods, a sustainable farming system, and most importantly, a healthy community. You'll hear from regional and national experts on a variety of topics. Listen for Sustainable Agriculture Spotlight, Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, on the Green Talk Network. listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking about the trouble with river herring when they're out in the Gulf of Maine, and with me is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of New Hampshire and with Environmental Defense Fund, Dr. Jamie Cornane. Jamie, you were telling us about um, 
well, you're, you're telling us how you were following certain fishermen for certain fisheries, and that there were, and you're finding collisions between fish and those fisheries, between river herring and those fisheries. Uh, tell us a bit more about the encounters. Sure. And river herring bycatch has really been um, at sea has really been unmanaged and unmitigated. And this work that I've been work that I've been um, doing in collaboration with um, other researchers has found that there are clear areas in the Atlantic herring fishery areas and times when encounters are likely to incur, occur for river herring. And um, the, it depends on the time of year, but September and October and November and December are times when in Ipswich Bay, which is just off the coast between the border of Massachusetts and New Hampshire, Massachusetts Bay, um, backside of Cape Cod, south of Martha's Vineyard, there are these are some of the times when you, you likely encounter river herring in the Atlantic herring fishery. But there are also areas um, late, early in the year, January, February, March, and April, in the northern mid-Atlantic bite where you where also encounter, encounters occur. So this has really led to um, our work on the plan development team to under to start to help develop measures that could address river herring bycatch in the Atlantic herring fishery. And there are a number of options that are currently in um, in the works right now. And what are some of those options? Well, sure. Um, so the the way this works is you have a fishery management plan, and through time there are developments, there are issues to address, and then amendment forms. And so we're currently in. Amendment 5 and the Amendment 5 process for the Atlantic Herring Fishery Management Plan. And that amendment has a number of objectives. It's not just to um, look at river herring. The primary objective is to really um, improve monitoring within the fishery. And then another objective of that is to, another goal of that, of that amendment is to address river herring bycatch. And for that piece, there are several different options right now. One of them is um, time area closures. So for certain gear types, certain types of um, mesh of the of the net, you wouldn't you'd be prohibited. A fisherman would be prohibited from, from fishing um, for certain times and areas that river herring encounters have been seen in the fishery. Another option would be that. Um, Fishermen would communicate effectively with among each other, and when they encounter a school of river herring at a certain threshold number, they would move away from the river herring and avoid that area until a specified amount of time, and then they could return to fishing for sea herring. So this would be an avoidance strategy. Another strategy... To to avoid the river herring when they're schooling in a significant number. Exactly. Let them go through and then go back and go after the... Atlantic herring, hopefully without the river herring mixed in. Exactly. So the the point of they're really they would prefer to just catch the Atlantic herring. So there is communi- there's a communication strategy that could be used among the different fishermen so that they could really uh, not be fishing on river herring. And then the other approach would really be in these times and areas where we've identified river herring events have occurred, that one strategy could also be a sea sampling program that focuses on those areas to get really good data on river herring to understand what's going on in those areas. 
So it would be um, a special monitoring program. So those are really the three options that are um, on that the three general options. There are different components to them, but um, in general, those are the different ways: really protection, um, avoidance, and then improvements to monitoring. Excellent. Um, and how how would they monitor something like slippery herring? Well, right now um, there's uh, at sea monitors. They are um, through the uh, Northeast Fisheries Observer Program. And these observers uh, currently go on board the fishing vessel. They count the fish. They take samples. They take scales. They take um, different um, parts of the fish and bring those back for processing. So there already is a um, system in place. It would, it would just be working with, within that system or in, um, adding additional um, protocols to the sampling. So there's a, there's a system in place now, and it would be working within that. There's also a sea sampling. In addition to the sea sampling program, there's a very um, important port side sampling program that the state of Maine and the state of Massachusetts run. And when the fish come into, the, into port, there's another, um, there's another series of samples that go on. And this has really um, been very valuable to try to understand which fish are um, being caught and how many fish are being caught. So there's there's really two sampling programs right now that are for the fishery at sea hmm. and then once they get to port. Right. So that's good to have monitors at both on the dock side as well as on the boats. Uh, so what recommendations are you making to, uh, to improve the life of uh, river herring? Well, I think clearly that um, there are clear Maybe times so. and areas. I, I think there are clearly times and areas where um, herring fishery encounters um, encounters river herring, and um, through that lens, that um, hopefully the New England Fishery Management Council can address river herring bycatch in the Atlantic herring fishery. Um, they've um, coming up at the end of the month the New England Fishery Management Council will hold um, its first meeting of the year. It's from January 25th through the 27th at the Sheraton in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And on the 26th of January is a full day of herring. And during that time, they'll be discussing all of the different elements of Amendment 5. And at that meeting, um, discussing which elements should stay in Amendment 5 um, and be uh, continue on in what's called the Draft Environmental Impact Statement. So these will be the measures that will be explored, ultimately go out for um, public comment. So um, really the next phase of, of this is, uh, is what comes out of the next uh, council meeting and what the council decides um, to do with, uh, with these uh, different options in the amendment. Now these are very public meetings. It's wonderful the way the public has such access to meetings of the uh, fishery councils. Uh, can people, um, would you encourage people to attend to witness this? And can they uh, email you if they're interested in attending the uh, January 26th uh, Herring Day work? Absolutely. This is a very open public process. The public is encouraged to attend. If you don't, or if you, you can't attend or you're not inclined to, you can always um, write to the council, and there's a process for that, and you can find that on the New England Fishery Management Council website, which is nef 
www.mc.org. And there you'd also find the um, schedule for council, uh, the council meeting and the times when um, they'll be discussing herring and other fisheries as well. So I would recommend if you're interested to come participate and um, it is a very public process, a very open process. There's time for um, public comment during um, decision-making time, so it's, it's definitely very inclusive. And there's extensive documentation and really interesting stuff on their website uh, leading up to the decisions they make. Tell us again the, the website because it's some, the place that people should go uh, if you have questions or if you want to learn more about um, how we're managing, how fish are being managed and, and how good stewardship is trying to be applied. Um, what's the site? So it's www.nefmc.org. And by Friday on the website, you'll be able to link through the calendar and see a, a number of documents. Many of those um, for herring are things that I've worked on, and there's a number of white papers that um, show these patterns of where the bycatch has occurred and where the fishery is and some of the options that we're considering. Um, so it, it can all be found there, and by Friday, I think everything will be on that website as well. Yeah, they're very thorough about getting stuff up in advance. That's excellent. Um, is there other things people can do to help with the river herring? Uh, does our consumption have any impact? Or Well, I think one of the first things, if you're really curious about river herring, would be um, try to plan to see a run in the spring. So find yes. a place in Massachusetts or Maine or New Hampshire where you can really see these fish in action and watch them. I think they're it's a pretty incredible sight to see. Um, and there's other things people can do to get involved. You can support your um, the dam removal projects in Maine. You can um, you can learn more about what the alewife harvesters of Maine do and their municipal management. Um, you can also, um, you know, think about uh, uh, attending a council meeting or a commission meeting and and uh, voicing your opinion there. Yeah, much to do. And another place is to check with your local watershed group. I live on the Mystic River, and we're proud to have put in a, a fish ladder just last summer between the Mystic Upper Lake and the Lower Lake. And in past years, we literally had a bucket brigade hoisting the alewives over the, the dam, and now they've got this great raceway to go through. So check with your... Um, you know, with local watershed groups in your neighborhood. And local watershed groups also do really incredible work where they um, help count fish, not just bring the fish. If you're not really into being in the bucket brigade, but if you want to go and count the fish and see how many are returning every year, there's, there's some really great work by watershed groups to really monitor what's going on and fill the gaps where um, state managers haven't been able to monitor all every single river and stream. Jamie, we'll be right back after this break. Thank you for listening to the Green Talk Network. Help to spread the green by involving your family and friends. You're doing your part. Now help them think green. Spread the green. The Green Talk Network. All together now. All together. 
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. For some time now, we have heard more about buying from local farms and sustainable agriculture. We also hear about our world becoming more polluted and our resources being depleted. What does this mean for our future and our children's future? Sustainable Agriculture Spotlight with Jeff Berkby will focus on local foods, a sustainable farming system, and most importantly, a healthy community. You'll hear from regional and national experts on a variety of topics. Listen for Sustainable Agriculture Spotlight, Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, on the Green Talk Network. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it will be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking river herring and troubles in the Gulf of Maine for herring. Uh, with me is Dr. Jamie Cornane, and uh, I had the good fortune of seeing uh, Dr. Cornane stand before the River Herring or the Herring Subcommittee of the New England Fisheries Management Council and give a PowerPoint presentation. And I was nobody in the room wanted to be in her in her shoes because there must have been twenty people around a horseshoe uh, panel all turning their eyes to, to, to Dr. Cornane, and, you know, some of them felt their whole livelihood was at stake for what she had to say. It was not the most um, comfortable situation to be in. And yet, you know, you delivered it with aplomb and with excellence, and uh, it was really well done. 
um, you, you, you've come a long ways. How does one get in that kind of situation where you are, you know, having put the work in, someone to speak for Herring like that? Uh, what, what drew you to um, learn so much about Herring? Well, first, thank you very much for that, um, those kind words. Um, well, I guess for Herring, it's maybe from an unlikely place. So I have been a New Englander for the past 10 years, but I really grew up in Orlando, Florida, and being surrounded by water in the beautiful Sunshine State, I was at the beach almost every weekend, or at SeaWorld, and I was really drawn to marine life. I knew since I was seven years old that I wanted to be a marine biologist. I was obsessed, and it was something that stuck with me. In fact, at our high school graduation, we had a little ceremony for our, our, our graduating class. And my best friend stood up and he said, Jamie, out of all of us, we wanted to be a marine biologist when we were little, but you're the only one out of this group who really we think will do it. And so it was my faith in myself, my parents who said, you can do anything and be anything you want to be and wonderful friends who are extremely support, supportive in me continuing on to be what they thought about being when they were little. And so it was a sense of purpose and really knowing that uh, this is something I really cared about deeply. Um, I went to the University of Miami for my bachelor's. I, there I studied marine science and policy and then came to the University of New Hampshire for my PhD, where I worked very closely with Dr. Andrew Rosenberg, and we um, and he really uh, was a wonderful mentor to help me understand um, all the difficulties and and challenges in New England fisheries management. And I realized through my work and my PhD that this is the place for me to be, and for me to really um, try to make um, a difference and, and do the best scientific work that I can. So well, it sounds fun. like you hit the best university in the country <laughs> because Dr. Andrew um, Rosenberg was there, and you know Andy Rosenberg has been a principal of the Pew Ocean Study that um, Leo Panetta led uh, back in 2002 and three and four, I guess. Uh, you know where they they traveled the country and and determined what were the issues to people inland as well as on the coast with ocean management. And it created a fabulous report that's like a, a lodestone or a compass for all the issues that one must address if they're going to help save the ocean. There's no simple answer. So and then, fortunately, um, people like uh, Senator Judd Gregg and so forth were getting national funding for NOAA and for UNH, so that UNH was also became the place that Dr. Rosenberg chose. So um, congratulations. Um, he was actually tell us, tell us when more, I started. Many people, they have this idea of what they want to do. You know, like I, I was working on oceanography, and I'm at sea, and I realized that oceanography is watcher, watching water drip. It was all about taking sea samples and titrating it out. I had to go down to the galley at midnight and cook up spaghetti to make starch, so I have a starch solution to watch water drift. Drip. A lot of science is pedantic and boring, and it takes uh, something to persevere through the boringness to um, 
to get the degree or to get the experiences that has made you the scientist that you are. And um, Andy was on the U.S. Commission on Ocean Policy, so he was appointed by the president, and that was really the yes. start of my that was really the start of my career, and um, coming on and understanding that whole process that was going on. It was very exciting, and now I'm very um, I'm very blessed to be working with another set of very exciting people, and working with um, Environmental Defense Fund um, and the University of New Hampshire in a partnership to um, really understand river herring bycatch at sea. And that has been a, a wonderful um, collaboration. And, and so I've been very fortunate to work with people who um, have challenged me and who have really um, helped shape my thinking about um, conservation and conservation management. And so when the setbacks hit you about the complexity and the reluctance for people to change behaviors, uh, what, what do you draw on to persevere through that? I think that if we can find a common set of goals, maybe our path to achieve those goals might be different. But if we can start from our goals and where we agree, that that's a good place to be. Yes. I, I think clearly people do care, um, no matter what you're doing. And so if we can try to start from a similar point along the way, um, it will be challenging. But making sure that that is very clear from the beginning, I think that is really the cornerstone of, of, of collaboration and working together with a wide variety of stakeholders and groups. Well, you've succeeded because you've taken the time to learn the perspectives of others, be it Dr. Rosenberg, be it other um, colleagues. You know, you, you are, are not, you know, closing the circle. You are expanding the, the, the robustness of perspectives for things. And I think that uh, everybody wants to be heard first before they can talk about making changes. And I think you've got a good skill there. Well, thank you. Um, for me, it's, it would be wrong to say that I've been in this New England fisheries management for 20 or 30 years. There are valuable lessons to learn from people who have been working on um, this resource for a very long time. And I, I think that what my role should be is to learn from those, but then to continue the work. Yes. And, and, and not just to start the work and, and then go from there, but really to understand where what has happened. It's the same kind of approach that I used, I used in my work with historical baselines. To understand where we're going, we need to understand where we've been and to understand mm. where we're going to go on that trajectory into the future. Dr. Jamie Cornane, um, I want to thank you for taking this episode to tell us about the river herring. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And I wish you all the best in your um, upcoming January 26th meeting. Uh, and, yes. And, again, if people want to reach Jamie, they can uh, email me or they can go to the New England Marine Fisheries Management Council site. So until next time, this is Moyers Environmental Dialogues. Thanks for listening. 
Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. We'll talk again then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Think of the world 50 years ago.